Mana 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 this is social disgusting welcome to social disgusting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is a longtime friend and former co-worker at blockbuster video who is a filmmaker writer artist i mean really just a creator at this point and is the director of production at arkansas pbs whose truly excellent children's show blueberries clubhouse which is so good just recently concluded its run please welcome levi welcome hey brandon so good to talk to you thank you for those kind words yeah this is uh it's been a wild time kind of when things have been shutting down for most people uh my job we've ramped up that education television sector has had to fill in a lot of gaps so it's been pretty busy lately yeah, I was curious about that because, you know, Arkansas PBS being what it is, but very much, for lack of a better word, kind of trafficking in more, well, obviously local stuff, but also children's programming. Yeah, what has that been like in this kind of weird push and pull of not being able to do anything, but you're working more than ever? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like kind of what happened was with our station when Arkansas in the spring, you know, schools shut down and went virtual. The problem in Arkansas uh, that we're looking for a lot of solutions are is that most children, not most, I'm sorry, the broadband, which is high speed internet, affects only so many people. I mean, you think about people below the poverty line and people that just don't get high speed internet across the state, talking about all these rural areas and at risk areas. You know, going virtual for a lot of kids means basically you're going to McDonald's in the parking lot yeah. to do your homework and stuff, what I've heard called the McDonald's effect. So we, as you know, a television station that covers right now, sadly, only about 77% of the state is at least better than maybe like the 40% or whatever. I'm not looking at all the figures, but I'm saying it's a pretty, pretty low number of people that get high speed internet. And so we actually just applied for some federal funding for the CARES Act to go from that 77% all the way up to 99% coverage across the state um, oh, to wow. where our, our transmitters are able to get to these kind of hard to play, hard to reach places like in the Ozarks and, you know, areas that are just kind of left alone to modern technology. And uh, I think us, you know, as a, as a television company thought it was our our duty and our responsibility to find a way that we can help. And, you know, a word that gets tossed around a lot is mitigate that sort of help the, yeah. uh, the circumstances. And, you know, we did some at home learning stuff with some teachers of the year with the department of education that we did, man, we did like 500 hours of content, local, local content and, and PBS content that we sort of managed to pull together within like two weeks and then did wow. that for kind of eight weeks, basically. And it was probably the busiest I've ever been in my life. And, you know, I've worked for numerous film festivals and advertising agencies over the past decade. And what's weird is that like the work, even though we were working kind of around the clock to make that happen, it's probably the most fulfilled in a job I've been in because it was sort of serving this this need. So it's kind of like working at a like a startup nonprofit in a way, is where you just get this renewed sense of a mission and you know, wanting to to kind of help out your community and where you live. And I really hadn't had that that feeling in a long time. And so Blueberry also kind of scratched that itch too, doing a kids show for kids that don't you know, don't have internet access, being able to have a television show, because I don't know about you, but I was one of those raised by TV kids, basically. It's funny, you know, the 
I was thinking about, I, I watched the episodes too, and I watched them whenever they came out. And again, it, it is really just so good. And so, and it's so like genuinely funny, which is, I mean, honestly, that's just hard to come by in general, let alone through the prism of a more of a children's show. So, you yeah. know, because it's almost like funny is funny, but then it's like a subgenre of a subgenre kind of thing. So it's more specific, but it's very, very effective. And that when I was thinking about it, the highest compliment I can give it is that it's something that I wish existed when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really great. It really is. It's very clever and smart and just uh, has a very like DIY and a not in any way affected way. It's really good. Thank you so much. And we, we you know, we had a really great team that worked on that and put that together. And, uh, you know, it's it, it is one of those things truly in, in film and television where it is the collective whole, you know, that kind of puts something like together and pulls off that kind of miracle. But uh, that that thing you said of like making something for when you were a kid and that mm-hmm. that almost sums up my whole modus operandi in life right now is like just this weird guilt and insecurity of my childhood and, and things I missed out on that FOMO that yeah. I had co- constantly as a kid has just driven me into looking for opportunities to like do something for kids today or for my kid or to almost Peter Pan myself into progressing into an 11 year old, you know, and, and, and watching a lot. I mean, gosh, we could talk about the nineties nostalgia kind of wave that's been happening. And you look at Hollywood and TV and everything is kind of coming back to reboots and, and things. And so in a way it was our attempt to kind of recapture a lot of like, those old school PBS shows, you know, like Sesame Street, but also even thinking about like Bill Nye, the science guy with sure, yeah. you know, sound effects and the kind of meta jokes and stuff that was happening. And to me, like, gosh, I just remember going home from school and turning on the TV and watching, you know, Magic School Bus and Arthur and things like that that just really made me who I am, you know, it it molded my sense of humor and made me have this kind of empathy for people around me. And I think everybody on the team at at Arkansas PBS kind of feels the same way. You know, it's like a mixture between Sesame Street and Pee Wee's Clubhouse, you know, that that kind of vibe. It's like controlled zaniness or something. It's like they're, it's all just silly, but informative and it's just very easily it's easily consumable in a which sounds like i don't know that feels like corporate speak but it but it like really is it's (laughs) like you know it's one thing to learn something but it's like something that you're engaged in and actually want to learn makes it so much easier to consume for anyone let alone well i mean children are just complete sponges so you know it's just it makes me want to keep watching i'll tell you that much like it's just really fun and good and interesting and i want to ask you too your director of programming what exactly does that entail? Well, uh, technically, I'm director of production, which is a little different. Oh, excuse different. me, Pro- production. Sorry. Director no, of production. It, it's, all, it's all super confusing. So um, director of production, kind of what I do at Arkansas PBS is that I I get to be a part of a team that actually produces field work. So like many documentaries that w- would go on our local uh, PBS station, children's programming obviously with um, blueberry and then uh, we do sports like local coverage of, of sports we've got you know a lot of ties to athletics with 
many documentaries about that, but then we also do sort of like a championship airing of the of the high school champion state championships that we do, mm-hmm. and then we infuse these little short films and stuff about players and things like that to go into it. So it's actually pretty amazing. You know, we're able to do these kind of little 30 for 30 style documentaries, but then inside of that, or sort of they go inside of this, you know, state championship airing where we kind of bring like this almost like eight camera system out into War Memorial Stadium and film all the high school games. And then in the halftime, we have a halftime show and stuff. And so basically I'm kind of the... I don't know, the the circus ringmaster <laughs> of all these productions that happen that are more like, I don't want to say cinematic, but less television studio and then based. And then, you know, pretty much anything that we create, I, I am trying to manage that team of creators, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I guess it's that thing where like you can kind of read a basic job description of, you know, what is defined as a director of programming, but then you see it wander through the prism of like, you know, all those things are variations of it when it comes to depending on, on what the, you know, the organization is. So yeah, I was just curious about that. Was Blueberry Clubhouse, was that something that you helped develop that was existing before or just kind of came on? What was that, the germination of Yeah, that? that's actually a really interesting history to that because it all comes back to what we did in the spring for schools. You know, we were trying to come up with ways to make local programming inside of the PBS Kids kind of educational, you know, stuff like the Crap Brothers and Molly of Denali and all the new kind of PBS stuff, Arthur or whatever. In between those shows, we made our own content with local teachers of the year. And beyond that, we wanted to include almost like these little kind of field trips, like these virtual field trips uh, Mm -hmm. that showed off, you know, like Crystal Bridges and like PE class from UAMS. And and so inside of that, I was approached by a good friend of mine who goes back many years, Katie Campbell, who is the the children's theater director at the Arkansas Arts Center. Mm -hmm. And I've known her for years with the um, Little Rock Improv group. And she's at the joint inside their, their improv group. And she pitched me of this idea of doing a puppet sketch that did like STEM learning, you know, like kind of engineering concepts for really young kids. And I was just like, oh man, we've been kind of dying to do a puppet thing. And and they had this blue puppet, this very primitive kind of puppet that they threw together very quickly for this purpose. And they had a class that they were supposed to do for a grant and it got pushed because of school canceling. And she was like, well, we've got all this energy into this thing. I'd love to figure out a way to get it on television. So all these kids could experience, you know, this little engineering, you know, how to make a puppet class. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was great. And I pitched it to our group. And uh, we did that, you know, as a little one off. And uh, I thought it went really well. It was real low fi real low budget, almost like a zoom sort of classroom with a puppet. And once our AMI or alternative methods of instruction virtual school was over, we were like, well, what are we going to do this summer? You know, what is the next phase of all this? And uh, I was thinking that that Blueberry character would be a great way to get across all the ideas of a virtual field trip or a virtual summer camp. And so I just kind of pitched that idea of like, what if we take this puppet and make her a member of a summer camp and get to visit all these spaces. And uh, that's kind of where that idea came about. And then I brought, you know, kind of 
helped form a team of people together. And one of our producers, CJ Burks, she actually worked on some puppet shows in Mississippi, like Between the Lions. I don't know if you remember that PBS show. Um, I, it was kind of, I don't know that I saw it. Yeah. It was a really high production value PBS show. And so I, her and a good friend of mine who now works with me, um, Eric White, who's an artist and a filmmaker, they were sort of co-creators and co-showrunners, co-producers of the show. And uh, we just kind of let them run loose. And uh, we had a DP, who's a, another good friend of mine, who's kind of responsible for the look, Terrell, and um, our writer, Corey, uh, who kind of worked on all the sort of structure and stuff. And then we partnered with, you know, the Little Rock Zoo and all these amazing, you know, partners throughout the state, state parks and stuff like that. And uh, it just, it couldn't have turned out better, in my opinion. It was just yeah. a, a perfect storm of collaborators. Arkansas Innovation Hub helped us out making props and stuff. And the Art Center made our sets. And they sort of refashioned the Blueberry Puppet. So there's like a version one that was in that first show. And then we retooled it for Blueberry's Clubhouse. And that's sort of version two. So it's kind of a interesting evolution. Well, just your description of it, too, is, is interesting. Because it kind of reminds just the sound of it, too, of... Just working with all these different uh, stakeholders or different people in different places and locations in Arkansas, these different creators, these other people that you've known for years. So it's like, you know, you're literally collaborating with some level of just old friends that it has. I don't know. In and of itself, it just sounds like it's a very like DIY production, but just on a much, um, you know, like you're used to doing Like you used to do short films and things just like that idea, but on such a larger platform, which is really cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's very much that it was, it was, you know, we, we had a very little budget because we're, you know, operating under a leaner year this year with, you know, COVID restrictions. And yeah. it was just a bunch of people donating their time. I mean, the, the people that we got to do the music, uh, mom and pop and, uh, Isaac Alexander and my friend Colin Buchanan, you know, they all took, uh, you know, basically zero pay or super reduced rate just because they love the idea and uh, wanted to work on it. So it's it's exactly like me uh, and our friends making, you know, short films and stuff, except, you know, we have a million, uh, you know, capacity audience yeah. on, on the airwaves, which I've never, ever had before. That's so cool. Yeah. I also, too, imagine it's... um. It's one thing to kind of, you know, envision something or hope for the best, prepare for the worst of, of what is going to, the end product's going to be from, you know, the original just planning and brainstorming to then getting the end product. And it's pretty much, if not exactly everything you could have ever hoped it could be. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely one of those things where I always look back and say, man, we could have done this. We could have done that. But just... Sure knowing how much work we put into it and all of us, you know, especially uh, naming everybody, but our editor, uh, Tracy Prince, uh, who did all the sound design and uh, helped kind of form it out of this kind of three camera shoot, which I've always been kind of like a icky feeling about doing like a, you know, a three camera studio television show. Yeah. Uh, but I think we really, showed that 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 format can work in this way and have its own energy and its own kind of ideas without feeling you know like the traditional everybody loves raymond kind of sitcom you know like the white yeah, shot exactly. and the singles and stuff so 
we're able to do a lot of interesting stuff with it. This is uh this is unrelated to this, but before we recorded, we we're talking about you were just talking about something that some things you were listening to. So I guess this kind of organically transitions into what you've been doing with I guess what limited downtime you had based on everything we've talked about before this. But what have you been listening to specifically? Well, you know me. Me and you are avid avid fans of the Doughboys uh, podcast. I, uh, you know, I've had a love hate relationship with the food I eat for the past probably thirty years, and fast food was something that I kind of had to give up. Uh, you know, about probably five or six years ago when I had my daughter. Uh, you know, she's seven now, but it took me a while to kind of realize like, oh man, I've got to get it under control. I was basically a hundred pounds overweight and just eating double cheeseburgers all the time. And, uh, you know, that was my drug, you know, eating food that I wanted, I craved all the time. And so over the years, I've kind of cut back on that, but, um, the Doughboys podcast is a way that I've been kind of vicariously living through my, yeah. <laughs> my fast food <laughs> fantasies. And, uh, to this day, you know, I don't know how you feel when you listen, but it, it, sometimes it makes me crave like those foods, but generally it's the conversations and the rapport that really gets me hooked. It's not always just the subject matter that they talk about. I honestly, yeah, for me, it's, for the most part, the food is secondary. Yeah. Like I, I like, uh, the reason I like the, t- the food talk outside of just to your point, like the rapport is that I guess it's like, um, I guess it's the ongoing familiarity, but also it's almost like ritualistic like this. I listen to this and they have the rapport, which is the great part because it can go anywhere. And it's always so funny. It makes me laugh so hard, but then, okay, well, this is part of the process near the end too. So yeah. I just like all that. It's like, uh, it's I don't, it's like you're around friends and it's comforting. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say is like I think the reason why it works so well is because it's it's accessible, right? Yeah. Every, everybody eats. Everybody has some kind of relationship to fast food or takeout or restaurants. So there's always an entry point of an opinion about something or a take. And I think I can listen to a, a podcast about you know like ramen which I don't like, but hearing it, it's an interesting perspective because I have like an emotional reaction to food so easily. And so the food stuff, I think it works really well in that it's like a container for all the stuff that we mentioned. And so, uh, you know, the Doughboys is, is something that I, is probably one of my, my staples of a podcast I listen to. I'm a Patreon, uh, member, you know, I, I have to have, two episodes a week, you know, it's almost an addiction, just like fast food was to me. So at some point, I'll probably have to wane off the Doughboys. But um, yeah, well, I mean, I'd sooner consume two podcasts a week than have to deal with the ramifications of two double cheeseburgers per week. So yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, for my mental health, hopefully it stays it stays where it is, because it it is a podcast that I look forward to a lot. And uh, we were talking about before the podcast as well is that I've really been getting into Tim Heidecker's podcast office hours lately. Yes. And like you mentioned, Doug, uh, Doug Lucenhop or DJ Doug pound, man, I have a huge crush on him man crush. I think he is so creative and I've been following his podcast for a while. I think he had one with Brent Weinbach uh, yeah. called the Poundcast, I think. 
that um, I really liked. And even before that, he did one with uh, Moshe Kasher and uh, Neil Brennan called Champs, I think, or something like that. Yeah, The Champs. The Champs. And I loved it. Like, I thought his drops were so funny. He's great. I really like, to your point, though, like, he just has, he's like this creative ball of energy that I really admire. Yeah, I mean, his editing work on Tim and Eric and Portlandia, I've just, it's such my sense of humor. And he tells, like, dad jokes a lot, and I just think he's real smart and clever. So I'm obsessed with that right now. I've been listening to that really hardcore. I think it's a great show. I think think they're all great. And I think, um, you know, more of the face of the, the project, Tim Heidecker, I think he's brilliant. I don't, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, I, I think I don't you I don't throw this word around at all because I, I like to remain to keep its value. But I do think he's a genius. I really do. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely one of those people that I understand people that say, like, I'm just not into Tim and Eric or I'm, yes. it's not not my thing. But like for me, it just hits a brainwave thing for me where I'm just like, I get it. I love it. It's for me. It's like the pinnacle of of comedy and i don't even consider it anti-comedy like some people do no Uh, either cringe comedy maybe but like i you know and even on his podcast he kind of plays more of like a straight man than i think he has in the past and i think he does really well at that you know he's kind of uh morphed into this you know i would say it's like a i don't know if it's character of of who he is because i don't know him obviously uh, but it just seems like he's he's really stepped into his own because in a lot of podcast interviews he's done, you know, on Comedy Bang Bang or whatever, he, he tends to play a little aloof or yeah. not not really show his true personality. And so I'm very curious to, you know, if this is the real Tim or sort of another character, um, you know, because he's in that same uh group with like uh, Neil Hamburger or, or Greg uh, Tarkington, I think with uh, yes. on cinema. Absolutely. And a lot of that shtick is, you know, developing personas. And so it's interesting to me because it feels very real uh, office hours, or at least a played up version of himself, maybe. Yeah, I think to your point about his podcast appearances, it definitely feels like uh, he's playing some percentage of himself, even if it's, you know, not 100%. But some varying percentage. Some version, of that. yeah. Yeah, but the interesting thing to me is that he's not. He's not. The interesting thing to me is that he's not. He's not doing persona a comedian that is so insecure they can't stand to be themselves. He right. is so. It's so the opposite. He's doing it, which maybe that speaks to kind of the time of Tim, Tim and Eric styles, where you see it as like, oh, this is stupid, brainless humor. But I'm like, no. It's deconstructing it so it is brilliant. It's commenting on the thing, which makes it really smart. You have to understand how these things work to be, and then to be able to play on them. Yeah. And I think that he is the type where the reason he is being a percentage of himself is because he has the utmost confidence in whatever he wants to do. Because like he's yeah. a guy who is so funny mm-hmm. and so quick and so smart, and he's also such a goddamn good musician too. Like, he is just an artist. He is yeah. so talented. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, it's kind of like you're, what you're saying about that kind of genius term is that, you know, there's not too many other people like that that just are, are you know, Fred Armisen, I consider very similar in that way. And yeah. I think him and Tim, actually, they have a show coming out, Moonbase 8, 
that I'm yes. really looking forward to. But it's like, you know, when I see Armisen doing impressions and stuff on SNL or even in uh, Portlandia, his characters, and I'm just like, man, he's just so good. And then you hear like he's a great drummer, too. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, just makes you angry that they're so yeah. talented. Yeah, it does remind me, too, that he, he does seem to on some like surround himself. And, and maybe it's just that they naturally gravitate toward each other because they're, there's this this uh, kind of unspoken kinship there. But, like, Dr. Steve Rule is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, John, John C. Riley's so underrated as a yes. insane comedy actor. I mean... Uh, I, we could talk about Steve Brule, obviously, but like even if you go further back, like Boogie Nights, and his character in that, uh, that that kind of Brock whatever that he plays, like in the yeah. in the parody movies, he's just so great at like playing that dumb, arrogant guy. You know, even before like the Chris Pratts and the uh, you know that kind of new version of like the the dumb leading man that that's kind of popular right now. Like he just, he did that so well back then. And I kind of like lost him for a while, like after Boogie Nights, I, I forget, you know, all the other stuff he did, but it's like, you know, when him and Farrell, Will Farrell teamed up like on Step Brothers and Talladega Nights, it was like, oh yeah, this dude is a powerhouse comedic yeah. actor. And yeah, you forget that. Like anything. Because, yeah. Cause he's so good dramatically too. I mean, like, yeah. like like all the P.T. Anderson stuff that he's in, he's just phenomenal. Like uh, Magnolia, I mean, geez, that, that first cop scene uh, where he's uh, talking to the lady in the apartment. And, and I, I almost think he's got that kind of Robin Williams thing where it's like he's so empathetic and, and good, smart, creatively that that's why he can bounce between the two so well, dramatic and yeah. comedic. Yeah. And also, he, then he pops up in Chicago, and he sings Mr. Cellophane. Yeah. And, and granted, he wouldn't have to do any, like, singing heavy lifting. But the fact that he could do any of it on top of all of his other just pronounced abilities, it's just like, dear God, man, like, he can really do anything. And then, you know, go over after that to Walk Hard, which is an unbelievably funny movie. And he's yeah. so good in it. And going back to Steve Brule, I mean, that, that is such a transcendent character, you know, that, that really took off and became kind of a life of its own to where young people now, you know, they only know John C. Riley as yeah. Steve Brule, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, I think about my favorite comedic characters, you know, my comedy characters, and Steve Brule is probably my top five. Like, if I'm thinking about it, I think Steve Brule, Alan Partridge... Uh, Jiminy Glick mm. and, and McGruber are probably my top oh, yeah. four. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, much like um, Steve Brule, I, I would put like Borat in there, you know, like Sacha yes. Baron Curran, Cohen's level of immersive, insanely funny, like groundbreaking kind of characters. We got a sequel coming. I heard that. I uh, already filmed it and everything. And, and did you hear the meta version of it? Like it's Borat playing... Or Sasha Baron Cohen playing Borat, who's playing Sasha Baron Cohen. Okay, I'm. I'm. I, that sounds amazing to me. I know. I'm it's all, like I'm all in. And he's, he's, the thing I'm most impressed by, even without obviously having seen any of it, and they've already edited it, like it's ready to go. Apparently, yeah. is that they did it, and only like one story with one photo 
of him filming it came out, and that was in the last month. That's insane. Which, granted, I suppose, in some ways, maybe it's easier than ever in this climate to be able to do something like that under the, yeah. the cover of night, maybe. But even still, it actually, yeah, now that I think about it, it's easier than ever to do it. But it still happened. And I'm um, very excited to see what that's like today. Hey, while we're while we're on the subject, yeah, very curious to your thoughts on Hollywood's survival of this pandemic, and if you think big things are going to change. I mean, look at the the theater right now. You know, what do we've got? Like Tenant, and you know, what else is coming out by the end of the year? West Side Story. I guess West Side Story. They just moved uh, for the fifth time. Oh, Wonder God. Woman back from like the nineteenth or eighteenth to the twenty fifth of December, which as of the at the moment it's competing with its own studio property Dune, which I don't think that's gonna last. I think it's gonna blink and Dune will move to like May or something. Yeah. But uh, especially with by the way that Dune trailer that just came out, there yeah. was no release date on that trailer. So well, well it's kind of like uh, Tenant, right? Where it's like in theaters and then there's almost that ambiguous question mark. That's supposed to be yeah. after it. It's like, what? what is the marketing doing? Yeah. Uh, you know, what are you putting your money into if there's no call to action? I know. It's uh, it's very odd. I get bad in terms of like movie theaters in general. I think they're going to return, but I definitely think obviously it's going to be, there's going to be less of them because, yeah. you know, they're just not all of them can survive. Nobody can survive all of this. Not everyone anyway. And I think my fear, my real fear is that, you know, the Amazons of the world are going to, really are going to buy a theater chain like they've been trying. I think Landmark Theaters they were trying to buy for like 38 or 40 theaters. And that vertical integration that they purposely have have laws in place to actually prevent that. I have mm-hmm. I get real bad feelings that's going to regress and we're going to go back to that. And so if that you, happens, it's going to be bad. So do you think, is that saying that Amazon is just going to pump their content into the theaters? Is that the idea? Yeah, or or yeah, that they're absolutely. they're going to own just the distribution channel. So, Paramount and whoever would have to pay Amazon to get their movies shown. It wouldn't surprise me if they're going to do that for the sake of of another revenue stream, because obviously uh, there is no amount of money that's enough for them or Bezos at this point. Yeah, but at the very least, I mean, it's just going to be like they're going to use that to be able to control exhibition for their own movies, which will then give them qualifications for the Oscars and there's going to be a lot of stuff with it. But I I just think that exhibitors already have such a fleeting amount of control to the point where that the studios are more resentful or ever that they have to go through them. So anything that they give up is a high percentage of such a a lack of control as it is. So I I think I'm in their corner about like, they don't make money on these movies. That's why the concessions are so expensive. So like, just it's really just a parasitic possibility and i also think it's really gross that these massive corporations are in the middle are going to use a pandemic to take advantage of these smaller exhibitors that really bothers me and also when disney bought fox i was like oh shit this is really bad because they the more control they have the higher percentage of that market that they have the less they have to give a shit what consumers want well funny enough you you mentioned that because i was thinking about this a lot is that kind of Netflixification of things where you just you get on there and you see like hundreds and hundreds of movies that you've never heard about they all have like middling like 5.0 imdb ratings yeah and it's just like algorithmic content and it's because it's so cheap and easy to make and people just watch it you know it's like they don't care how the majority of people don't care you know if it's a seven 
like I've always had this almost like obsessive thing of like, I won't give a movie attention unless it has seven or above on like the IMDb scale. But yeah. like, that's kind of worthless now because of uh, bots and, and people that do campaigns to kind of bring down reviews and stuff. But what I was trying to get at is like, you know, with Amazon and Hulu, now that I've got all these streaming services, you see a majority of the content that they have is just schlock. You know, it's just kind of your low grade entry level, you know, it's just a numbers game. Yeah, they just want exactly. volume. They want subscribers. And I think that HBO was doing a great job of that for a long time of being like, no, we have a standard. We're going to keep it up. We're prestige yeah. entertainment. And then I think like A&T, AT&T, AT&T or somebody bought them or... AT&T bought it. And now they're yeah. just a, it's a volume game for them. Yeah, yeah, they're doing the same exact thing. And I'm like, okay, so basically I'm going to have to just rely on like A24 or like these little indie studios yes. that, that have like a millionaire heiress that just cares about yeah, like indie, indie movies. Yeah, yeah exactly. Annapurna with Megan, Megan Ellison. I mean, honestly, yeah. Or like The Orchard or these smaller singles you know absolutely because when it comes to streaming i mean it's just an arms race and this is not a revelatory statement and i don't mean it to be but my long time position with netflix has been 95 percent of netflix originals are bad bad, bad they're bad, bad, bad. Yeah. and not just like they're bad and and the funny thing is they don't intend to be good they don't the ceiling for them is low because Honestly, they're just more concerned with it getting out there than it is that it's what it takes to get there, you know? Like, and again, if people are enjoying it, more power to them. But hey, I like, will I will I will give one caveat. The Sandler deal that they've got. Oh, it's great. Uh, the new movie that he's got coming out, the Halloween Hoobie, I forget what it's called. Have you seen the trailer for it? To be continued. 